Well, it's one of the great ironies of church history that the various holy ordinances that God has appointed, especially for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that are supposed to be putting a separation between us and the world, in fact, separate us from each other. That which is intended to promote union has been a chief cause of division. Now, in the Law of Moses, God said, you're not supposed to take a kid and boil it in its mother's milk. A rather strange commandment, I agree. Maybe that was a pagan, pagan practice. I don't know, and I don't think anyone else really knows either. But in any case, we are not supposed to be taking that which is meant to nourish life and use it to cause harm instead. And I'm afraid that this is what is happening too often for those things that God has appointed for us in his covenant. Every week, we enjoy the Lord's Supper. Christ appointed it. He said, do this. And so we do it. But why do we do it? What is the purpose? What is the kind of help that this is to our faith and life, I ask you? I realize there are some difficult sometimes arcane questions about which we might disagree. But what is clearly set before us? What is the intention that should be obvious to us all? What is the Lord's intention that we should be receiving? Many people today wouldn't think that the question itself is even important. That is to say, as I said to you at the beginning, our, our worship climate in America, we, we have a created a spiritual culture in, in which the Lord's Supper, this physical representation, does not find a natural place in our ethereal faith. Um, in many seeker-sensitive uh, churches, for instance, megachurches especially built in the last few decades, the Lord's Supper has no regular place in, in the worship of God. In some places it is never administered. In, in other places it's very rarely administered, and it can be left out with, with no apparent sense of loss. That's my point. And, and something is clearly wrong. I was joking around at the beginning of the service and uh, getting you to think about how we are in, insane as a culture that we have some feelings in here which don't correspond to reality out there. But it's the same in the church. We have a disconnect where what we think and feel um, doesn't have the physical expression that it ought to have, and, and we don't seem to mind very much. Something is clearly wrong with this. Our Lord has instituted a practice and instructed us to do it. We should be coming to the table out of more than simple obedience. But if it is important, shouldn't it be clear to us what the importance is? What are we supposed to be bringing to it again, or more importantly, even gaining from it? I say there are questions that I don't even want to spend time on that would divide us, but, but certainly there are very important things that the Scripture clearly holds out that all of us should be considering vital. Um, baptism also, of course, one of the things that is given to unite us as we all are baptized into one body. That baptism unites us together. But I realize there are certainly disputed and difficult questions about baptism. I agree. But again, I ask, are there not some 
very important things on which all might agree, but we tend to neglect. How is our baptism supposed to be a help and a benefit to our faith and life now? What are we to bring to it or gain from it? Maybe you say, I, I'm not bringing anything to it. Uh, it. My baptism was years ago. I'm, I'm not bringing anything to it. I'm not doing anything with it. Is, is that the way it's supposed to be? Um, to make an analogy for just a second here, uh, circumcision, which is uh, given first here in this, in this chapter, uh, it comes up again and again and again, starting in Exodus, uh, very rarely with respect to any uh, physical things that need to be done. It, it, it says, hey, circumcise your hearts. Uh, you uncircumcised of heart and lip. Uh, it, it calls people to remember their circumcision and live accordingly again and again and again. Um, well, that's just one example. Uh, is there anything for baptism? that we might be neglecting, that God has repeatedly been emphasizing to us? Um, or, for example, we think of our church's larger catechism asking a question, how is baptism to be improved by us? Baptism to be improved, you say? I, I see blank looks. You say, I, I don't even understand the question, and I certainly have no idea what the answer might be. Um, baptism being improved, if that's something that we are supposed to be doing in order to benefit, especially from the baptism we received, what does that mean and what would those things be? Perhaps you think, oh, this must be some reflection of a strange sectarian sacramentalism. Not at all. I don't think there's any Christian in any time of the church's history who would disagree with their answer although I might have to explain it and go through a long list of scripture proofs to make it clear, but, well, I know you're curious now, so I'll, I'll give you the, the answer. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we're present at the administration of it to others by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it by the privileges and the benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein by being humbled for our sinful defilement and falling short of it and of walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements but by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in it by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we're baptized for the mortifying of the grace of sin, excuse me, for the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith to have our conversation or life in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given themselves up their names to Christ uh, and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. Well, you say, all right, well, that, that's, that's all really, really good stuff. In fact, pretty important central stuff for the Christian faith, but where did they get all that, and where do they connect that to baptism? Well, in, in, in a number of verses, many more than I'm going to be able to give this evening, simply to say what they did is they just went through the Bible and they gathered together all those references in which we also are well, as Matthew Henry's father, Philip, says, 
where we are taken by the handle of our baptism and we are said, now this is what it means for you to uh, live in light of it. So for example, in the sixth chapter of Romans, we read that therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, <coughs> certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, and so forth. So this uh, chapter expands on this. If we, if we just understand what our baptism signified, what it meant to us, and what it means to us today, the truth that it illustrates and preaches to us, and the life it therefore encourages us to live, we will be both encouraged and exhorted to walk in a certain way, a kind of newness of life that our baptism points us to. And all this is called improving our baptism. You say, well, okay, I still don't understand the matter of improving baptism. How do you improve on baptism? Well, the older sense of the word improving means, quote, to use or employ to good purpose, to make productive, to turn to profitable account, to use for advantage, to employ for advancing interest, reputation, or happiness, Webster's 1828 Dictionary. So if you use something for a good purpose and make it productive and profitable to your advantage and advance your interest or happiness or so forth, that, that is called improving something and when you do that to your baptism, you are following out what the Bible says, that that which happened to you perhaps so many years ago is still to this day to be something profitable, useful, productive for your Christian life. One more quick example. Um, when Paul urges the Galatians, Jews and Gentiles in particular, to live in unity, he writes, for as many as, you w as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jew and Gentile alike, that is one of the things that our baptism has pointed us to, that we are together as a unity. There is a connection here not explained that tells us that we are all partakers of that Abrahamic covenant promise in an important way. So our baptism puts us under a, an obligation to live in a certain way in the church with respect to each other, and it requires us to think a certain way about God's promises to us in thankfulness. Well, I, I, I say there's, there, there are a number of references, and uh, it, it can't be right if we never think about such matters. These aren't things about which Christians disagree. These are the things that we perhaps forget or ignore or neglect, but, but this is the emphasis of the scriptures in so many ways. And we say, is there not some more help or blessing or encouragement that we're supposed to be enjoying as we come to this table week after week? Is it just supposed to be a torturing of our conscience? Is there, is there not some more that we are to get? 
Um, on the one side, there is this neglect. I'll, I'll mention on the other side, and in, in, in some admittedly smaller circles, there does seem to be um, a troubling, I think, overemphasis. I mean, we've separated these things now from so long, for so long, the, the spiritual and the physical as one is supposed to have an expression in the other. That uh, on the other side, there's a uh, confusing and a blending, again, in some s smaller circles. But I, I do hear, even among my peers, people called more and more ministers of word and sacrament, ministers of word and sacrament. I mean, minister of the word is a perfectly good biblical phrase used uh, more than once to uh, describe a calling, um, minister, minister of the word, uh, Luke 1, other places. Okay, so uh, minister of the word, fine. Minister of word and sacrament does seem to put them on the same level, and I, I, I do... I'm concerned when we are, again, getting rid of a biblical phrase or emphasis, what are we saying and why? Um, I, I think sometimes there's uh, perhaps a confusion or an, an I wouldn't say an overemphasis, but a misemphasis on these things. Brothers and sisters, God has given us signs and seals. There are a lot more uh, they function in various ways, but as we'll see this evening, he has called them signs and seals, and they're for us. They, they, they preach to us, they speak to us, they encourage us, they, they, they direct us. And I'd like to think for a few weeks about just how exactly they do that. What, is the things that, what are the things that we all would agree need to be before us constantly? But with this introduction, we come now to the passage that we read earlier. God had made a promise to Abraham way back in chapter 12. It wasn't that many chapters ago, I suppose, but it was 25 years earlier almost. When he first called him out of Ur, God said, get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And, and, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. A, later, a promise later expanded to his seed, you'll know. Now, at that time, Abraham had a wife named Sarai, who was about 65. But in any case, well past the age of childbearing. And Abraham was 75. That's when the call came. Many more years would pass before anything happened. It was going to be another 25 years before there was going to be any tangible proof of this promise before Sarah then bore Abraham a child. Yes, God waited until Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 that it might very, 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 very be very clearly the fulfillment of a miraculous promise. Now, admittedly, it's very hard to believe what you can't see, especially when it seems like everything was going in the opposite way of what God has promised. Um, I'll mention more about that in a second, but, uh, you know, after God called Abraham, there, there was nothing for years. I mean, God brought him, he called him, he was with him, and then, and then nothing. But we do read in Genesis 15 that when the promise was reiterated to Abraham that Abraham believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And on that very day, God 
made or reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham, a covenant then confirmed here in chapter 17, that he might truly be the father of the faithful and of many nations. Uh, I'm going to be talking about some sign and seal language, but my point is at the beginning here, we can't just start with circumcision. We need to start that God had some really big purposes in the world that he was going to fulfill through a covenant, which in some way embraces you and me Gentiles as well. And only then, mostly next week, will we will be able to understand something of the purpose and benefit of the sign that he gave Abraham and how this is then connected to what God has called us, the seed of Abraham as Gentiles, to do and to be. Um, My first point to you this evening, though, is starting where we need to start with God's covenant and our history. God's covenant and our history. If you'll give me a few minutes to set the bigger stage. Uh, We're not talking about just a little sign. We're talking about world history. The history of the world is the outworking of this covenant God made with Abraham. Okay. Everything that follows in the history of the world is an outworking of this great purpose announced and promised to Abraham, starting in chapter 12, a little bit more in 13, and then in 15, and then both summarized and personally applied here in a covenant relationship with certain obligations with circumcision. Here in 17, the history of salvation, indeed the history of the world, will be the outworking of how indeed this man begets a nation, in fact, many nations, and how his seed blesses the families of the earth. And when that's done, it's all done. The history of the world comes to fruition through this covenant that has a certain sign. Now, the history of salvation, uh, as I say, is embraced in this so that we read later in Exodus chapter 2 that uh, God was moved to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt as they were suffering oppression because, quote, he remembered his covenant with Abraham. And uh, therefore, he's going to fulfill the promise that he made. God's a promising God, and he's going to fulfill his faithfulness to Abraham and the covenant he made. Later in Exodus 6, the Lord told Moses that he would deliver Israel from Egypt uh, because, again, of the promise he made to Abraham, but skipping ahead a little, God then later makes a covenant with David, promising that he would have an heir to sit on the throne forever, and we'll think in in two weeks from today, especially about this seed of Abraham. We'll have a whole week just on Jesus, and uh, what it meant for him, what it means for him, what it means for us in him. But Psalm 72, a psalm written by Solomon about that promised king, the Messiah, we learn that all nations will be blessed in him. That's funny, that's the very same language that God gave Abraham about his seed. Yes, because the Messiah was the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it was through the son of David that the word of Abraham, word to Abraham was going to be fulfilled. In fact, that's the very first verse of the New Testament. Did you know that? The New Testament begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because he's, he's calling us back to say that all of this is the fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord. The Abrahamic history, the Abrahamic covenant, comes up again and again. It's essential to all that follows. It's why so much attention is paid to this history and why it's so often appealed to later. 
Um, Abraham is referred to throughout the Bible an astonishing number of times, I think. Um, well, 42 times uh, after his death from Exodus through to Malachi, 75 times in the New Testament. That is almost twice as much in the New Testament than in the Old Testament, even though the New Testament is so much shorter. And, and by the way, just for those keeping score, the word circumcision occurs 37 times in the whole Old Testament, including the 10 times that happens in this chapter, right? It only happens 27 more times in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. And again, the, the emphasis there is uh, typically on the spiritual application of that sign. But uh, 37 times total, including the 10 here, 56 times in the New Testament. Um, there's something there that's now been uh, hardened into some people's mind in the wrong sense of things, and there is a right sense of things, which both uh, John and Jesus and the apostles want to drum into the people that uh, they might properly understand this sign and this seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith, what it truly means and should mean in their lives, but it in fact did not. Well, anyway, Abraham's history casts an enormous shadow over the whole Bible, and these things are clearly written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. The whole discussion about Abraham and circumcision finds its home in the New Testament, and that's for us especially. So Abraham can be dated with confidence at approximately 2000 B.C. In other words, Abraham lived as many years before the birth of Jesus as we live after it. But it's only been in the last few years that we've learned anything about the world of that time in terms of its uh, daily life and so forth through archaeology. In in fact, the world that Abraham lived in, which we we felt was perhaps more primitive, turns out to be in so many ways like our own, that nations carried on vast international trade, uh, taxed by government bureaucracies, Wealthier people, at least, were widely literate and often in more than one language conversed. We have a description even of Canaan from a near contemporary of Abraham, a man named, I believe he's called Sinuhei, an Egyptian nobleman who in the 20th century BC became the governor of a large Amorite tribe in the very same highlands of Canaan where Abraham went to spend most of his time. Sinuhei wrote a poem about the place Abraham lived just a few years after his death, probably, or maybe even overlapped. Um, He writes, there were figs in it and vines. More plentiful than water was its wine. Uh, Figs and vines, more water, more, more than water was its wine. Copious was its honey, plenteous its oil. All fruits were upon its trees. Barley was there and spelt without end all cattle a rich and productive land. And what an epic in human history it was when God called some man to leave his house and his family in Ur to journey to that land of Canaan. That man, otherwise a man like any other, certainly, although rich, not one that held any promise of future greatness, became by the mercy of God, one of the two or three most consequential people ever to live in the world. Here is the great patriarch of biblical history, the exemplar of our faith and salvation by faith, the one about whom we know more than just about anybody else in the Bible. Uh, That is to say, we know more about Abraham than just about anybody except Moses, David, Paul, 
and the Lord himself, yeah, maybe uh, uh, Joseph, his grandson. But this man from so long ago is still very, very important to us, this friend of God, the father of all who believe in Jesus as he did. Jesus, in a particularly striking statement in the Gospel of John, said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad, and the people were astonished. Paul will use Abraham's life story as his crowning demonstration that men are made right with God by faith in Jesus. The author of the letter of Hebrews will use Abraham as the prime example of what it means to live by faith. Indeed, throughout the remainder of the Bible, God himself will call his name the God of Abraham. That's who I am, the God of Abraham. Um, interestingly, even Islam, uh, perhaps some relation to Ishmael we read earlier, Islam also greatly honors Abraham in its own way, as does Judaism and Christianity for obvious reasons. So here's one of the very few great men of history who's revered by more than half the population of the earth, right? By billions. Very interesting. Um, this is, the, uh, this is the history um, into which we are brought. The history will be then applied to explain uh, some of the particulars of the covenant and its sign. So just introducing you to those ideas. Second, he is called the father of the faithful. The father of the faithful. And that sign is going to be very closely related to that title. People have admired Abraham's faith for thousands of years. In Romans, as I mentioned, Paul refers to Abraham as the father of all who believe. And Paul is correct um, that we are all descendants or the seed of Abraham, um, reckoned by faith. Galatians 3, consider Abraham, he believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that, that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And so he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, end quote. Where did this great man come from? Why does he just suddenly appear in chapter 12 as the centerpiece of biblical history? Was this a man who all his life had loved God and sought God and for his reward made the father of many nations? No. He was born into an idolater's family in Ur of the Chaldees, as we read in Joshua 24, verse 3. There over the river, he worshipped idols. Abram was certainly not a man of faith until God called him. In fact, we, we might point out there were other faithful people in the world of that day, like Melchizedek we just read about. But, but God chose this man, Abraham, or Abram at the time, out of an idolatrous family, in Ur, to redeem him and to preach the gospel to him in a wonderful way and to settle him in a place he didn't know where. Calvin summarizes it this way, that God said, I command you to go forth with closed eyes until, having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. So for, for years he's walking by faith and not by sight and visualize what this situation was like 
He, he had to go, he knew not where. To do, he wasn't told what. To receive a promise, which, seeing that he and especially Sarah were completely past the age of expecting a child, seemed incapable of fulfillment, but off he went. And the Bible says there's an important word for that behavior, which is faith. That from the very beginning to the end of the Christian life, this is what is supremely required, and we are called to look back to Abraham, who, although he did waver from time to time and was occasionally slow to obey, as we Christians are, in fact, fell into a certain sin repeatedly, nevertheless, that the man who had faith, clearly, when it had got hold of him, he could never go back. And just as today, when faith gets hold of us, a man or a woman in Christ, we cannot return. We go forward, even to a place we've not seen, to do what we're not quite sure, to, to have promises fulfilled that seem too, too good to be true, and, and yet we go. And we find that we are not alone in this journey. And the great exemplar of the journey that you and I are on is this man, Abraham. And God let him go many years with not a word. Precious little fulfillment of any promise. God told Abraham that he'd be the father of great, a great and mighty nation. In fact, then later, uh, nations and kings would come from him. And he repeated then enlarged the promise in Abram's pilgrimage. And yet, he kept on talking, and yet nothing kept happening. And he must have wondered if he was going crazy. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, the father of a great multitude. And yet in all those years, to, up to where we read, from the time that he got his first call and the promise in age 75 to the day when he was 99 and the Lord appeared to him again, his wife was still barren. Um, in those years, the small company of his immediate family, if anything, shrunk. Abraham's father, Terah, died. Lot had taken his leave to go live near Sodom. Very soon, Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, would be sent away as well. Abraham's family was getting less and less multitude-like by the year. But the promise kept coming, and he kept believing. And in these and many more ways than might be mentioned tonight, Abraham was made the father of the faithful. He's given a promise which will be fulfilled, and yet he, he just had to go on and wait. And with this man, God made a great covenant, supremely that he would be a God to him and to his seed after him. And for this covenant, God instituted a sign and a seal. And to read the passage, you might think that circumcision was the covenant. Do this, you're in. This is my covenant, verse 10. Be circumcised. But as we will learn, and especially as it's opened and applied and developed, it's actually what it signified that was important, not what he calls in verse 11 here actually the sign of the covenant between me and you. It was this circumcision that pointed to the saving power and truth that we also enjoy. Um, by the way, compare the rainbow in Genesis 9, the sign of the covenant that I make with you. Um, Sometimes, uh, especially with uh, certain signs of the covenant, God, God just says, this is my covenant, right? Uh, with circumcision, this is it. And you know that many of the Jews made this fatal error to think that if they had it, 
that they were someone, even if they didn't have the faith to which it pointed, or specifically the righteousness of the faith to which it pointed. Uh, Similarly, the Lord Jesus, he says, this is my covenant. We say, it's a sign, right? Well, okay, um, covenant signs are, are, are are often given just in such language. This is my covenant, God says. Yes, he explains it as the sign, but but uh, he invests these things with particular importance so that when Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, very f- familiar biblical language, we're to understand a sign that points to the reality, but the reality is the most important reality there is. The saving reality that fulfills God's great purposes in the earth. And it will be a very great biblical error to suppose that the sign is what God actually desires without respect to the reality to which it points. Thinking that a sign might give you grace when you don't even have the reality that it is signifying and preaching to you. And so, my final point now, I would like to explain the language that I've been using to show you that it is biblical language. Sign is given here in Genesis 17. Seal comes in Genesis, excuse me, in Romans chapter uh, 4. Actually, maybe we'll start at 2, verse 28, if you want to go there with me. We, we, go, we go here to just have one of the many elaborations of the real meaning of the sign. God, who has this great purpose in history and who's called a man to have a covenant with him through whom all of history will, will flow and all the nations and all the families be blessed and all that, he receives this sign of circumcision. And now in Romans 2, verse... Uh, uh, well, let's just, go to, let's just go to 28 at the end of this discussion. We read, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. I mean, yes, that's required. Yes, that's God's covenant. That's what you're supposed to do. But understand that it's the reality that's actually being pointed to that's de- that you're describing. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You don't have that circumcision? You're not a child of Abraham. Don't say, says John, you're you're a child of Abraham. I tell you, the axe is already being laid to the root of the tree. God's able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. You better get with the program, because... You are looking at the sign, and you are of your father, the devil. Not Abraham, the devil, as Jesus puts it. So, in the true circumcision, to which the physical thing was only a sign, we read, what mattered was the heart, and especially the work of the Holy Spirit, renewing the heart. And uh, the uh, uh, circumcision of heart, the the, uh, the inwardness, uh, that is to say the faith, to which it uh, pointed. And then there's a question that comes in chapter 3, verse 1. Well, what's the advantage of the Jew then, or what profit is circumcision? Well, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Uh, the visible and the invisible are supposed to work together, the sign and the thing signified. 
um, it's not going to save you, but it is going to preach to you the essence of the saving faith. And that, that circumcision that preaches to you the oracles of God uh, by which you will be saved and the world will be blessed. So much in, much in every way, but only when it's working together as it should. The, nat- the next natural question follows in verse 3. Well, what if some didn't believe? Um, in fact, he, he, he says here it's the sign of the righteousness of faith. What if some didn't believe? Not everybody who receives circumcision clearly grows into the faith that it signifies. And Paul says, wait a minute. Um, Will their unbelief make the faithfulness, same word, of God without effect? Certainly not. Let God be true and every man a liar. Uh, Abraham didn't make up this sign. This is the sign from Abraham to God. This is a sign from God to Abraham. This is the direction downward. And God is going to be faithful to his part, even when his people in so many ways were not faithful to them. That also is going to be a very important factor in history. Skipping down, though, now to Romans chapter 4, verse 8 and following. Romans 4, verse 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute his sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, as some apparently thought? Or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, it was not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. It was back in Genesis 15 that he believed God. And God reckoned or imputed it to him as righteousness. And it was written for us. The gospel revealed before circumcision was even given. But then in verse 11 we read, He received then the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he already had, while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Long before there was circumcision, God had blessed this man with an imputed righteousness, which we also receive in the same way. And this became a sign. You know what a sign is? A sign is a symbol of often an unseen reality. You drive down the road and you see um, Blacksburg or sharp curve ahead. Okay, the, the sign is not the reality. Maybe the reality is too big, like the town of Blacksburg. But maybe the, 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 the sharp curve is not even seen yet. That's why they give you the sign ahead of time. It, that, that unseen curve is very real. It is a reality. It's the most important reality in your next 10 seconds. But you can't see it. And so the sign tells you about an unseen reality, and how you might then slow down and uh, be prepared to swerve. Likewise, for us, baptism is a sign, the Lord's Supper, a sign of the blood that Christ has shed for our forgiveness um, of the body that was given uh, for us. And uh, these signs, they, uh, they, they tell us of a very, very important unseen reality, but one that is most critical for you to uh, receive and and to live in accordance with uh, a saving reality which is has value yes much in every way now a husband regularly tells his wife that he loves her and what then is a kiss 
Well, you say a kiss is a sign of his love. It's true. But it is actually even more than that, isn't it? It's more than just a, a symbol of something. A kiss actually communicates the very love and affection it signifies. A kiss conveys, confirms, and personally applies that greater reality of love. A kiss is a physical conveying of the very love that is in the heart of a man to his wife. And would it be enough for a man to tell his wife, I love you, but never to communicate that love through physical means, through the reality of that devotion, the affection that's in your heart? We say, well, no, that, that invisible great reality must be communicated personally applied if a man is going to be faithful to his love. Well, in a similar way, I tell you, um, this is how God's covenant signs functions, not just as a sign, but as a personal seal to us. The Lord's Supper we are about to receive is a seal of God's great saving love to us. Not just signifying that we who receive it are righteous by faith, and the recipients of covenant mercies, but as we receive it, he intends us that receiving it as he intends with faith, with love, with repentance and so forth, that it might actually communicate the very saving love and affection that it does symbolize. That just as a kiss is a special expression of a husband's love for his wife, that about which we are to partake is a special expression of God's love which he lavishes upon his people. And what does this seal? Um, in some traditions, you might think that uh, with all the uh, raking of the conscience that must go on before you can ra very rarely and occasionally come to the supper, that what we are sealing is, in fact, our faith. But that is not the case. We are to come with faith. We are to examine ourselves. But this does not seal what we are bringing to God. It is sealing the righteousness that he has brought to us by faith in Christ. A seal, even as Abraham received a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. He had the reality, and this was sealing it to him, this righteousness of faith, a righteousness which is from God through faith, is yours, sir, is yours, ma'am. That saving love is going to be personally applied to each one of you. It will not be sealing your faith, but the righteousness of God and the promises of God, and that even if we in so many ways are reminded here, as we waver in faithfulness, God is faithful. And that we don't feed, we don't come to the table to feed on our faith. We come to the table to feed on Christ. We don't come to the table looking only at ourselves. Like Abraham as we receive this. We are having sealed to us 
God's righteousness and his promises through Jesus. Paraphrasing my professor Sinclair Ferguson, it's important because this determines which way I look when I come to this table. Am I only looking at the quality of my own faith? Or am I looking toward the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ? Will I go from the table as one who is largely fed on my own faith? Or will I go as one who is fed upon Jesus and tasted of his gracious promises and benefits? Does it recenter me on Christ? Does it lift up my soul to him? Does it point me to him that I might find him and have nourished my uh, trust in him? Or will you go away simply having examined the faith with which you came? We are coming not primarily bringing something, though we're to bring faith, repentance, love, new obedience, all that, but we are primarily here to receive that we, as again the larger catechism says, might meditate on his death and sufferings and thereby stir up ourselves in a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging ourselves and sorrowing for sin and earnest and hungering and thirsting after Christ and feeding on him by faith and receiving of his fullness and trusting in his merits and rejoicing in his love and giving thanks for his grace and in renewing our covenant with our God and our love to all the saints. Say, that's what I need every week. That's why he's appointed it every week. Calvin explaining the balance this way. It is a sacrament ordained not for the perfect, but for the weak and feeble to awaken, arouse, stimulate, and exercise the feeling of faith and love. Indeed, to correct the defects of both. This is the worthiness, the best and only kind of worthiness we can bring to God to offer our vileness and unworthiness to him so that in his mercy we may be taken as worthy, to despair in ourselves that we may be lifted up by him, that we may accuse ourselves so that we may be justified by him. A very different kind of worthiness than is often mentioned. But in conclusion, the Lord has fervently desired his people to do this with him. He says that right to his disciples on the night of his betrayal with fervent desire. I have desired to have this supper with you, uh, to eat this Passover with you. God has called us. He's invited us. He was longing for this moment in Jesus where as it were we, we might just have a, a foretaste of all the blessings fulfilled that covenant that promises reality still it seems so far away kind of like Abraham seems so many years in the future it seems like we've received so little now and, and yet it's given to hold us fast to assure us of God's purpose and love, that his purpose and love is, is through you to the world itself. And that when that purpose is fulfilled, the world in its current day will be done. And again, amazingly, just as it called Abraham, Abraham, Abram, out of idolatry, in Ur, to a whole new life, a life that he did live well, but sometimes struggled. It calls each one of us likewise 
to come and receive the same grace and have a righteousness that is not according to the law, but a righteousness that is received from God through faith in Christ. That's what we need. That's what he's giving. One time when John Rabbi Duncan was administering communion, an old woman had come forward for communion but was, was so affected that she paused. She paused with uh, the common cup as they had in those days in her hands and then passed it on. And uh, Duncan moved from his position and he took the cup and he went back to the lady was and he pressed it into the woman's hands and said, take it, woman, it's for sinners. And this presses on us. It presses on us the same reality. It was sinners Christ Jesus came into the world to save. This saving love is to have very real expression in your life and mine. Christ himself, we read, has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It's a very big welcome this evening. Taste, taste again for the first time, as the old commercial says. Taste again for the first time these tokens of your Redeemer's saving love. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that, that Abraham, truly our father by faith, might preach a good word to every heart, to reassure those who waver, to confirm those who doubt, to exhort those who weary of going on that you are a faithful God and present and able to fulfill every word that you have given. You have pointed us the way. So we come to Jesus and pray that he would be our all in all.